0: The Bazaar is a podcast that deals with mature subject matter that some listeners may find offensive or upsetting. The Bazaar is not recommended for any listeners under 18 years of age. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to The Bazaar. Welcome to season two of the Bazaar. If you're new, hello. My name is Alicia Grek, and once a week on a Friday, I release a 15 to 20 minute episode outlining an unsolved case, conspiracy, a supernatural event, or for today, the life and times of a serial killer. If you aren't new, welcome back to season two of the Bazaar. Outside of running this podcast, I'm a full-time grad student, so I allotted a month a little hiatus to focus better on all the other stuff I had to do outside of running this ship. Like, studying, because apparently that's a thing. I'm back, you're back, let's get rolling. Information from today's episode comes from Wikipedia and Murderpedia. Today, we are going to be talking about John Wayne Gacy. You also might know him as Pogo the Clown. I don't like to use the word prolific, but let's say awful. He was an awful serial killer who operated from 1972 to 1978. His targets? Young men. To this day, the official body count is still inconclusive, as authorities still believe that Gacy may be responsible for other cold cases. John Wayne Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1942. He was born the second child and only son of John Stanley Gacy and Marion Robinson. John's dad, John, which is confusing, was a mechanic and a World War I veteran. Marion was a stay-at-home mom. As a kid, John Wayne Gacy was not active, not athletic. He was close to his two sisters and mother, but had an abusive relationship with his father. His father, John Stanley, was physically abusive to his wife and his children. Throughout his childhood, Gacy really tried hard to make his father proud of him, but never received his approval. This friction was constant throughout his childhood and adolescence. One of Gacy's earliest memories was of his dad beating him with a leather belt at the age of four for accidentally disarranging a car engine components for his father assembly. First of all, that's terrible. Second of all, I don't really know what dad expects a four-year-old to be able to understand how to put together a car engine. When Gacy was six, he stole a toy truck from a neighborhood store. His mother made him walk back to the store, return the truck, and apologize to the owners. All in all, good parenting. Then of course when she informed his father, who beat Gacy with a belt as punishment. Gacy's mother tried to shield her son, but this only made things worse. In 1949, Gacy's father was informed that his son and another boy had been caught touching another young girl at school. Gacy's father whipped him as punishment. Following this incident the same year, Gacy was molested by a family friend. Gacy never told his father about this. Because of a heart condition, Gacy was ordered to avoid any strenuous physical activity as a kid. He was an average student with few friends. He was also the occasional target for bullying by neighborhood children and classmates. During the fourth grade, he began to experience blackouts, occasionally hospitalized as they would amount in seizures. His father blamed these episodes on an effort to gain sympathy and attention and openly accused his son of faking it as he lay in a hospital bed. I don't think Gacy faked his illnesses. I think it explains a lot about his psychoses that follows. In 1960, at the age of 18, Gacy became involved in politics—which is always a good sign—working as an assistant for the Democratic Party candidate in his neighborhood. In 1962, Gacy left home and away from his abusive father. He drove to Las Vegas, Nevada, where he found work with an ambulance service before he was transferred to work as an attendant at the Palm Mortuary. I'm not really sure which one of these two jobs i'd rather him not work at more i hate the idea of this guy assisting in the recovery of a person in an emergency i also hate the idea of this guy assisting in the funeral of a person who's passed away in his role as a mortuary assistant gacy slept on the cot behind the embalming room in this role he observed morticians embalming dead bodies and later confessed that one evening while alone he clambered into the coffin of a deceased teenage boy yeah, keep the large creepy men out of mortuaries, please. It never leads to anything good. Later on that year, Gacy finally returned home. Upon his return, he enrolled in the Northwestern Business College. After his graduation, he took a management trainee position with the Nunbush. I'm really sorry. I don't know how to pronounce this. The Nunnbush Shoe Company, which got him. Str- oh, my gosh. Which got him transferred to Springfield. In March of that year, he got engaged to Marilyn Myers. The couple got married that following September. Something wild, Marilyn's dad owned like three KFC restaurants in Iowa, so that's where Gacy and Marilyn moved to. In Waterloo, Gacy joined a local chapter of the JCS, which is basically a youth mentorship program organization. Which is honestly the last place Gacy should ever be, but that's a little bit of foreshadowing. Gacy lived a really busy life. He was managing three fast food restaurants on top of mentoring youth. In 1967, he rose to being the vice president of the JCs. At JC meetings, Gacy would often provide free fried chicken to his colleagues and insisted upon being given the nickname Colonial. Is it Colonial? Colonial for the chicken guy? KFC? <laughs> What's the chicken guy's name? Colonial Sanders? Is that it? someone let me know. Okay. (laughs) That same year, Gacy served on the board of directors for the Waterloo J.C.s. Gacy's wife gave birth to two children. A son named Michael was born in February of 1966, followed by a daughter named Christine in March of 1967. Gacy later described this period of his life as perfect, adding that the family he earned in a long sought approval of his father. On one occasion in July of 1966, Gacy's parents paid a visit to Iowa, during which his father apologized privately to him for the physical and emotional abuse he had been inflicting on him throughout his childhood, before proudly informing him, Son, I was wrong about you. Sweet right? Totally erases the years and years of awful, awful abuse. However, there was an unseemlier side to this perfect little life that Gacy had been building for himself. A life that involved weird shit involving the JCs, Wife swapping, prostitution, pornography, drug use. Gacy was deeply involved in many of these activities and regularly cheated on his wife with local prostitutes. He was also known to have opened a club in his basement where he allowed his employees to drink alcohol and play pool. A lot of these employees were underage. Although Gacy employed teenagers of both genders at the time at his restaurants, he only socialized with his young male employees. Many were given alcohol before Gacy made sexual advances towards them, which if rebuffed, he would claim were jokes or just a test of morals. In August of 1967, Gacy committed his first sexual assault upon a teenage boy. The victim was a 15-year-old named Donald Voorhees, the son of a fellow JC member. Gacy lured Voorhees to his house in promise of showing him pornographic films. He plied him with alcohol and persuaded the youth to perform oral sex on him. Over the following months, several other young males were sexually abused in a similar manner, including one whom Gacy encouraged to have sex with his own wife before blackmailing the young man into performing oral sex upon him. Gacy tricked several teenagers into believing he was commissioned with conducting homosexual experiments in the interests of scientific research, for which each young man was paid up to $50. In March, Voorhees reported to his father that Gacy had sexually assaulted him. His father immediately informed the police and Gacy was arrested and charged. He denied all charges. He even took a polygraph test and ultimately failed. He publicly denied any wrongdoings and insisted the charges against him were politically motivated. Never one to learn from awful decisions, on that following August, Gacy persuaded one of his employees to physically assault Voorhees. Schroeder agreed to lure Voorhees to a secluded spot and spray mace in his face and beat him. Gacy promised to pay this other kid $300 if he followed through on the plot. That September... Schroeder lured Voorhees to an isolated county park, sprayed mace and supplied by Gacy into the youth's eyes, and then beat him half to death, all the while shouting that he was not to testify against Gacy. Voorhees luckily escaped, and then reported this second assault to the police. This all resulted in Gacy entering a plea deal of one count of sodomy. Nothing like getting your back up against the wall and finally having to admit that you're just as awful as everyone says you are. Gacy was officially convicted of sodomy on December 3rd of 1968 and was sentenced to 10 years at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. On the day he was convicted and sentenced, his wife petitioned for divorce, requesting possession of the couple's home, property, and sole custody of their two children. The court ruled in her favor and the divorce was finalized on September 18th of 1969. Gacy never saw his first wife or children ever again. Gacy was granted parole with 12 months probation on June 18th of 1970, after serving only 18 months of his 10 year sentence. Within 24 hours of his release, Gacy relocated to Chicago to live with his mother. He arrived in Chicago on June 19th and shortly thereafter obtained a job as a short-order cook in a restaurant. Can you believe that going to that restaurant and that guy is the guy cooking your food? On February 12th of 1971, Gacy was charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy, again. The teenage boy claimed that Gacy had lured him into his car at Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal and driven him to his home where he had attempted to force him into sex. This complaint was subsequently dismissed when the young person failed to appear in court. The Iowa Board of Parole didn't learn of this incident, which violated the conditions of his parole, and eight months later, on October of 1971, Gacy's parole period ended without any disruptions. The following month, records of Gacy's previous criminal convictions in Iowa were subsequently sealed making him less of an enemy and more of any other civilian on the street. With financial assistance from his mom, Gacy bought a house in Northwood, I'm so sorry, Norwood Park Township, an unincorporated area of Cook County. This address, 8213 West Somerdale Avenue, is where he resided until his arrest in December of 1978. This is the address where all of his known murders were committed. Shortly after Gacy moved into the house, he became engaged to Carol Hoff, a divorcee with two young daughters. Hoff, whom he'd briefly dated in high school, had been a friend of his younger sister. His fiance moved into his home, and soon after, the couple announced their engagement, which made Gacy's mother move out of the house shortly before his wedding, which was held on July 1st of 1972. One week before Gacy's wedding, on June 22nd, he was arrested and charged with aggravated battery and reckless conduct. This arrest was in response to a complaint filed by a teenager named Jackie D, who informed the police that Gacy, impersonating a police officer, had flashed a sheriff's badge and lured him into his car and forced him to perform oral sex. Don't worry though, nothing actually happened. I'd like to think if something did happen here, Gacy wouldn't have hurt as many people as he did. These charges were later dropped after the complainant attempted to blackmail Gacy into paying money in exchange for him dropping the charges. Following Gacy's marriage to Carol Hoff, his new wife and stepdaughters moved into the Somerdale Avenue house. At this time, Gacy had quit his job as a cook and started his own construction business PDM Contractors. Being the initials for painting, decorating, and maintenance contractors. In 1973, Gacy and a teenage employee of PDM traveled to Florida together to view a property that Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped this young man in their hotel room. As a result, this teenager refused to stay in the same hotel room as Gacy and instead slept on the beach. On returning to Chicago, his employee drove to Gacy's house and as he was in the yard, he beat him. Gacy's mother-in-law stopped the teenager from further attacking Gacy, and he drove away. Gacy lied to his wife that the attack happened because he had refused to pay the teenager for poor quality work. Through his membership in a local moose club, Gacy became aware of a Jolly Joker clown club whose members would regularly perform at fundraising events and parades in addition to voluntarily entertaining hospitalized children in late 1975. Gacy took up the moniker of Pogo the Clown, or Patches the Clown. Gacy designed his own costumes and taught himself how to apply clown makeup. Although some professional clowns noted the sharp corners Gacy painted at the edges of his mouth, contrary to the rounded borders that professional clowns normally employ, so as not to scare children. Gacy's function was to scare children. Gacy is known to have performed as Pogo or Patches the Clown at numerous local parties, Democratic party functions, charitable events, and at children's hospitals. He is also known to have arrived dressed in his clowning garb at a favorite drinking venue named the Good Luck Lounge on several occasions with the explanation that he had performed at a charitable event and was stopping for a social drink before heading home. On January 2nd of 1972, Gacy picked up 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal. Gacy took McCoy, who was traveling from Michigan to Omaha, on a sightseeing tour of Chicago, then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night and be driven to the station in time to catch his bus. According to Gacy's later account of the murder, he awoke to the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife. Gacy subsequently buried McCoy In his crawl space and later covered the teenager's grave with a layer of concrete in an interview after his arrest gacy stated that immediately after killing mccoy he felt totally drained yet noted that he experiencing a mind-numbing i'm sorry to say this orgasm as he killed the young man he added that's when i realized that death was the ultimate thrill gacy later stated that the second time he committed murder was around January of 1974. Gacy's second victim is believed to be an unidentified boy with medium brown hair estimated to be aged between 14 and 18, whom Gacy strangled before stowing the youth's body in a closet prior to burial. Gacy's next attack was on Anthony Antonucci. In July 1975, he arrived at Antonucci's home while he was alone, having injured his foot at work the day prior. Gacy gave him alcohol, wrestled him to the floor, and cuffed his hands behind his back. The cuff upon Antonucci's right wrist was loose. When Gacy returned, Antonucci, a member of his high school wrestling team, pounced upon him. He wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtained possession of the handcuff key, and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. Gacy screamed threats, then calmed down and promised to leave if Antonucci removed the handcuffs. He agreed, and Gacy left the house. Antonucci survived, and later recalled that Gacy had told him as he lay on the floor, Not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, you got them on me. On July 31st of 1975, another of Gacy's employees, 18-year-old John Bukovich, disappeared. Gacy strangled him to death and buried his body under the concrete floor of his garage. Gacy later admitted to having sat on the kid's chest a while before killing him. Bukovic's Dodge sedan was found abandoned in a parking lot while the teen's wallet sat inside and the keys still in the ignition. Over the following three years, his parents called the police more than 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Deceiving teenagers into donning handcuffs became Gacy's typical way to subdue his victims. After plying them with alcohol, drugs, or generally gaining their trust, Gacy would produce a pair of handcuffs occasionally as a part of a clowning routine, which he would persuade his intended victim into donning. He would finish then with a rope trick, placing the rope over his victim's neck and tying a makeshift tourniquet until the victim was strangled to death. Following a heated argument, Carol Gacy asked her husband for a divorce. Gacy agreed to his wife's request, although by mutual consent, Carol continued to live at their home until February of 1976, when she and her daughters moved into their own apartment. The majority of Gacy's murders were committed between 1976 and 1978. During this time, Gacy murdered Daryl Sampson, Randall Refflett, Michael Bonin, William Carroll, James Hackinson, Michael Rossi, Kenneth Parker, Michael Marino, William Bundy, Gregory Godzik, John Syke, John Prestige, Matthew Bowman, as well as several other unidentified males. In late 1977, Gacy began dating Carol Hoff again in the hope of reconciliation. By the end of 1977, Gacy is also to have known to have murdered an additional 6 young men between the ages of 16 and 21. Robert Gilroy, John Mori, Russell Nelson, Tommy Bowling, David Talsma, Robert Donnelly, and Robert Peist. There are countless other victims that followed, as well as countless victims that are unaccounted for and unknown. In 1978, the disappearance of a 15-year-old Robert Peist in late 1978 led police to the home of Gacy, who had apparently offered a job to the boy immediately before his disappearance. Gacy might have been the last person he ever saw alive, which made him very suspicious. A simple background check revealed his earlier sodomy conviction, and a search warrant was obtained for his home. On December 13th of 1978, His home was searched, and a number of items were confiscated, which included driver's licenses and college rings, but no bodies were discovered. Although investigators noticed a strange odor to which they attributed to a broken drain. Gacy was placed under 24-hour surveillance and his neighbors were questioned. Forensic evidence finally linked one of the college rings found during the search to the missing boy John Syke and a more extensive search of the crawl space under his house revealed the horrific extent of Gacy's killing spree. On the 22nd of December in 1978, with the body count mounting, Gacy finally admitted to killing at least 30 people, which included the 27 bodies found on his property, as well as a number who had been thrown into the nearby Des Plaines River. When the crawl space became too crowded to accommodate any more, Robert Peist's body was finally recovered from a lock on the Illinois River in April of 1979. Further forensic work ensured that all but nine of Gacy's victims were finally identified. Upon being sentenced, Gacy was transferred to the Maynard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois, where he remained incarcerated on death row for 14 years. Isolated in his prison cell, Gacy began to paint. The subjects Gacy painted varied, although many were of clowns, some of which were depicted himself as Pogo. Many of his paintings have been displayed at exhibitions. Others have been sold at various auctions with each individual prices ranging from $200 to $20,000. Although Gacy was permitted to earn money from the sale of his paintings until 1985, he claimed that his artwork was intended to bring joy into people's lives. During his time on death row, Gacy read a lot of law books and tried to appeal his case many times. Gacy also contended that, although he held some knowledge of five of the murders, those of McCoy, Bukovich, Godzik, Zeich, and Peist, The other 28 murders had been committed by employees who were in possession of the keys to his house while he was away on business trips. In mid-1984, the Supreme Court of Illinois upheld Gacy's conviction and ordered that he be executed by lethal injection on November 14th. That following year, Gacy filed a further post-conviction petition seeking a new trial. This post-conviction petition was dismissed on September 11th of 1986. After Gacy's final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied in October of 1993, the Illinois Supreme Court formally set an execution date for May 10th of 1994. On the morning of May 9th of 1994, Gacy was transferred from the Maynard Correctional Center to Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill to be executed. That afternoon, he was allowed a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family. For his last meal, Gacy ordered a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, a dozen fried shrimp, French fries, fresh strawberries, and Diet Coke. That evening, he observed prayer with a Catholic priest before being escorted to the Statesville Execution Chamber to receive lethal injection. Before the execution began, The chemicals used to perform the execution unexpectedly solidified, clogging the IV tube administering the chemicals into Gacy's arm and complicated the execution procedure. Blinds covering the window through which witnesses observed the execution were drawn and the execution team replaced the clogged tube to complete the procedure. After 10 minutes, the blinds were reopened and the execution resumed. The entire procedure took 18 minutes. Anesthesiologists blamed the problem on the inexperience of prison officials who were conducting the execution. On this subject, one of the prosecutors at Gacy's trial said, he got a much easier death than any of his victims. According to published reports, Gacy was a diagnosed psychopath who did not express any remorse for his crimes. His final statement to his lawyer before execution was that killing him would not compensate for the loss of others. And that the state was murdering him his final spoken words were kiss my ass in the months following gacy's execution many of his paintings were auctioned some were bought so they could be destroyed on june 1994 in a communal bonfire held in naperville illinois and attended by approximately 300 people including family members of nine of gacy's victims John Wayne Gacy is one of the most violent serial killers known to American history. He killed over 30 known young boys. His house was actually, I believe, demolished a couple years ago. So if anyone has any updated news on that, I would love to hear it. Episodes of The Bazaar come out every Friday. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at TheBazaarPod. Peace out, nerds.